0: So we've been in this series, God Godonomics, talking about God and money. That's really what this comes down to, and the ideas that come from money. And we've hammered out a few points over the last few weeks. But before we go back to that, I want to look at the three things that God is wanting us to experience that is very clear from Scripture. It's liberty, prosperity, and generosity. We're talking about freedom, the ability to acquire wealth, and then to be generous with it. That's the key. Now, there's a reason that America is the most generous country in the world, and it's because we are afforded these three things. We have freedom to go out there and make a living in whatever way that we want to for the most part. I mean, outside of things that are illegal. But you can go out there and do things you know, to make money however that you see fit within the confines of the law. There are more first, uh, first-time millionaires in the United States than any other country in the world every single year. And the reason is is because in America, you can come up with an idea, take that idea to market, and sell it. Something special about America, and we'll get into that over the next couple of weeks, but there's something unique that goes on here. So much so that you can sell a good idea, okay? I saw a guy sell on eBay his childhood, okay? Now hear this out. He's a grown man. It was all his pictures, yearbooks, letters that he wrote, homework that he did, all this stuff in a big box. He sold it on eBay for over $600, okay? Anybody needing a little uh, side cash there? I mean, and I'm thinking, only in America could somebody throw something up like that and somebody else be dumb enough to buy it. I don't know what you do with that. I have no idea, but I watched it sell. It, it, It happened. Maybe your childhood was bad, and you want to take on his. I don't know, but either way, I don't get it. So these three principles here are very clear from Scripture. We've got an idea in the church world that God wants us to be poor, because if we're poor, then we'll be humble. And that's not the case. God actually wants us to be prosperous so that we can be generous, but He wants our heart first and foremost. And if He has our heart, then we will be generous and we will be humble. It's where we put our heart. Okay? Now, from this, we've looked at this, and we're going to dig into this a little bit more, but this idea of how these things go. We have the ability, go ahead to the next one, yep, to produce something, which we talked about, from their profit, from there we save, and out of our savings we give, invest, and spend. Those are the three things that we do. With that money, all of that is tied to this idea of liberty, prosperity, and generosity. We need those three things in our life. God affords those to us. We have freedom to choose Him, reject Him. We have freedom to worship Him or not worship. We have freedom to go to church or not go to church. We have freedom to give to God or not to give to God. It is totally up to us. He does not force us to do anything. He does not force us to love Him. It's no different that if somebody chooses to reject God on this earth, He will not force them into His heaven against their will. He won't force them to do it. That's what he wants. I desire that all would come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But if you don't want to, that's okay. We have that choice. That, my friends, is freedom. And so when we break this down, we we came to two conclusions. One is that the heart of man is evil. We need to understand that. The heart of man is evil. God's love is what brings us in, and where our treasure is, there our heart is. What do we treasure more than anything else on this earth? So we need to understand what is going on here, because now today we're going to begin looking at these economic systems. And with that idea in mind, then we need to understand, okay, in these economic systems, what affords us liberty, prosperity, and generosity, and which ones take away from them? And so we're going to look at the big three. The big three, you guys all know them, capitalism, socialism, and communism. Now, there are other isms out there, but they're all offshoots of these isms, okay? So you can go and pick your favorite ism, but the bottom line is, is all three of these have been done in nations around the world and with different varying results. And so what is it? Let's define our term. So let's look at this one first, capitalism. It's an economic and political system in which a country's trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than by the state. What do they mean by state? They mean the government, Okay, not the state of Missouri. Okay, Capitalism is an economic system which largely allows markets to allocate scarce resources through prices, property rights, and profit loss signals. What does that mean? That means that you are free underneath a truly capitalistic system. And you'll see here that you're going to have a blending of a lot of these types of things. But a truly capitalist system where you are free to create something and sell it to somebody for whatever they are willing to pay for it, right? So use Nike. They've been in the news here lately. It costs Nike very little to make their tennis shoes, right? But have you seen what they charge for them? It's not very little. It's a lot. Why is that? Because they have found that the market is willing to pay a high price for that shoe. So when we look at profit and loss, we look at it and say, okay, if I paid $1 for this item and I can sell it for two, that's 100% margin. That's pretty good. And it is, right? But how many $2 items do you have to sell to actually make a living? A whole bunch of them. But if I find out that people are willing to pay more than $2, let's say they're willing to pay $10, why would I sell it for two? That's a capitalistic system. Am I ripping anybody off by doing that? No, I'm not, because that's what the market will bear. Right? I mean, you can go to McDonald's and get a hamburger. It's beef, right? What do we know about McDonald's hamburgers? It will keep you alive for a short time. It'll eventually kill you if you eat enough of them. It's cheap, right? You'll get some happiness out of it. But we would never compare that to a fine steakhouse, right? it's not the same thing. I don't know if I told you guys this thinking of fine steakhouse, but when I took Brett and uh, um, Jared, sorry, man, I almost called you Gabe, which isn't, isn't good for Gabe, really. Um, <laughs> when I took Brett and Jared to Colorado, we were driving out there. We were eating fast food on the way out and stuff. It was a long drive. We get to the hotel. I asked the guy, I said, hey, where's a good place to eat? Like, go sit down and have a meal Um, because as you can tell, I like food. And so and she's like, you know, if you just go across the bridge and uh, she's like, there's a ton of really good restaurants right over there. I said, perfect. So we jumped in the car. I said, boys, where you want to eat? Jared says, I want a steak. Of course he does, right? He wasn't paying. So of course he wants a steak. And so um, I said, okay, fine. And we happen to drive by this, the famous steakhouse. Okay, whatever. So we park, we go in there. Um, It's looks pretty nice but nothing too super fancy and so we sit down and order our sodas and before they brought us the menus and then they brought us the menus the cheapest thing on that menu was forty five dollars we're fairly committed at this point because we're there so each entree was minimum forty five bucks but guess what that was just the meat that didn't include the sides It was over $200 for the three of us to eat that night. And they better have enjoyed it. That's all I got to say. Now, like an idiot, I ordered a tuna steak. I don't know what I was thinking, but it sounded good. But they had some Wagyu beef. But again, when you look at that, it was extremely expensive. Their place was packed. There were a lot of people willing to pay that price to get a fine cut of beef. That is capitalism in a nutshell. If people weren't willing to pay that price, guess what? They wouldn't be in business very long. You guys follow what I'm saying? It's not complicated. It's fairly simple. We complicate it, but that's the gist of it. That's a capitalistic society. You have the freedom to create something and sell it to somebody for whatever they're willing to pay for it. It's like real estate, right? What is the value of real estate? Whatever somebody else is willing to pay for that, right? It's really simple. Like, I may have somebody tell me that my house is worth $100,000, but if somebody's willing to give me two I'm not going to turn them down. Like, no, 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 no. I don't want that. Right, that would be crazy. That's capitalism. Let's look at the next one. Socialism, a political and economic theory of social organization that advocates that the, the means of production, distribution and exchange should be owned or regulated by the community as a whole. That's a fancy word of saying the government. Okay? It should be run and dictated. So your price fixing ideas of how things are. So the means Production, distribution, and exchange is all regulated by the government. It's all regulated by the government. And so when it's doing this, it's saying, okay, you can charge this or that, but you can't do anything else with it. So it's very limited. Socialism is a system under which the government owns the means of production through coercive taxation and wealth redistribution allocates resources and makes decisions over property, prices, and production. So anyway, either way, you look at it, they have to take what you make, and they're going to tell you what you can sell it for. And if you're making too much money, they're going to take a large portion of that, excess of 60 to 80, sometimes 90% of your income goes to taxes, and then from there, it is put into this pool, and it is redistributed through social services program to make sure that everything is equal, okay? Because it's not fair for you to do well and for you to do poorly. Now, here's a question with this, and we'll get into this more detail later. But if everything is equal, does everything have to be fair? Because we have equal opportunity, do we have equal outcome? If somebody makes wise decisions in their life, do they have the opportunity to profit from that versus somebody who makes dumb decisions for their lives? No. Somebody who takes aside a little bit from every paycheck and saves it up for retirement... Shouldn't they live well off of that versus somebody who spends everything they make? That's the concept, right? That's really what socialism comes down to is they are controlling everything, all the details. Now, let's look at the last one. The last one is communism. This is the big one that nobody likes to talk about. A political theory derived from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and need. A progression from socialism is both a political and economic system which would abolish private property and give to individuals based on needs. Now the government fully owns everything. And from there, they're going to give you what they want you to have. And so when it says based on need, that is kind of a lot because it's not based off what you need you can look at North Korea there are people every year that starve to death in North Korea they're underneath a communist dictatorship who they take everything from the people and then they say they give it back to them as they have need they don't give it back because they need food have you noticed that Kim Jong-un is not thin no coincidence right he's eating very well I saw a thing the other day, he had, was in the mood for Italian food and literally had somebody fly to Italy and get it and bring it back. But people in his country are starving. This is communism. This is a step up from socialism, but it starts there. Because what happens is in the economic system, people get in a rough spot, and so they, they begin to look at it and say, okay, well, this, uh, this politician is promising he'll do this, this, and this for me, and that's what I want. And so it begins to take away the private property rights of the individual and say, okay, we're going to tax more in order to get this. But ultimately what it comes down to is they want total control over everything. So it says that this was invented by Karl Marx. It really wasn't invented by Karl Marx. He's the one that made it popular. Okay? Okay. It was, he was a, a German philosopher. He had this theory of communism. He's credited with founding the modern concept of it, but he wasn't alone. He and a buddy of his who was this socialist philosopher named Friedrich Engels. I got a picture of these guys. You can say what you want about them, but their beard game was on point. I mean, they've got that going on. So that's impressive. These two guys got together and wrote a book. It's called the Communist Manifesto. Now, most people would never admit saying, yes, I'm a communist or anything like that, especially in America. If, if Some of you guys have been around for a few years. You remember, like, it was get the commies. It was, they were at war with the commies, the Soviet Union and things like that. But when you start to break down what this is, you realize how much this has crept into our society today. So Marxism is a term that's often used for communism. It came from this materialist view of history, which means as he looked at the historical events that took place and the relationship between the differing classes of people within any given society. He would say, okay, they must be this. So the concept of a class, we look at this, middle class, lower class, upper class, all of that was determined whether any individual or these group of individuals would have access to property and to the wealth that this property would afford to them. Use farmland as an example. Can you go out and buy farmland and get your hands on it? Because traditionally, it was defined along very basic lines in medieval Europe as an example. Um, the society was divided by those who owned land and those who worked for the landowners that was really the difference and so when the industrial revolution hits the class lines now are those who owned factories and those who worked in the factories and that's getting into the 1800s when industries were really coming to the forefront and so he would break these two uh, two groups into uh, up a little bit it would be called the factory owners, the bourgeoisie. I don't know how you say it. It's a French term, but it means middle class. And then the workers were the proletariats, which is a Latin word, which means little or no property. And that's what he called them. He believed that this basic class division was dependent on the concept of property and it would lead to revolutions and conflicts within the society. And so what he was saying is that because not everybody has the same amount of stuff, it's going to lead to wars. So therefore, we need to take all of this stuff into one centralized unit and make it equal for everybody. It's called a utopia, right? You've heard the term, a utopian society, where everybody just gets along because everybody loves one another, and so therefore, we'll just bring all of our money together, and then we'll just give it out there equally, right? There's one problem with that. The heart of man is evil from his youth. The Bible is so clear. We went through that last week, Right? in a perfect world with all people who just love one another this doesn't exist because no matter what you do somebody is going to get greedy so here's a quote out of the communist manifesto the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles "...free man and slave, patrician and plebeian, lord and serf, guildmaster and journeyman, in a word oppressor and oppressed, stood in constant opposition to one another, carried on an uninterrupted, now hidden, now open fight, a fight that each time ended either in a revolutionary reconstitution of society at large or in the common ruin of the contending classes." And so he was saying that because all these wealthy landowners would have all of this stuff and these people essentially get jealous that it's going to cause this conflict and they're going to rise up and they're going to kill one another. But that's not what happens. I mean, sure, it's possible, but it's not what happens. So this ruling and working class idea would lead to a boiling point. And it would lead to this socialist revolution. So most philosophers through the years have have believed that history is shaped by ideas and the pursuit of actual reality or of human reason. But Marx believed that that is not the case. It wasn't the ideas that were the problem. It was the fact that somebody had something that he didn't. Now, from my understanding, Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels never held a job. All they did was go around and complain and try to get people to rise up to take from somebody else. Like, And I know you guys know this, but you realize that if a businessman owns a business that he put his blood, sweat, and tears into, he put his capital into, it, it, it belongs to him. We have no right to take that from him. But Karl Marx didn't believe that. He believed in the idea that we should just be able to take from them and have it all centralized with one person as the leader or one entity as the leader, and then it just gets fairly distributed as he wills. So here are some of the points of of uh, from the Communist Manifesto. It was the abolition of private property. He believed in heavy and progressive taxes, so we begin to tax more and more. That way, we can control more of the money. The abolition of inheritance. So if grandma or grandpa worked all their life and saved and you're in the will, that doesn't go to you. That's not your money. That goes to the government. We have a a very heavy tax on that right now as it is. Confiscation of property of all immigrants. Why is that? Because he didn't want outsiders coming in with outside ideas, being able to purchase property and then control that. A centralized banking system. In other words, one bank who controls everything. A state-controlled communication and transportation. In other words, there is no freedom of speech, which we have here. They believe what they believe, and so therefore they will make sure that the masses hear that message continuously. And then the last one is state-controlled education of children. You guys may have heard a quote from Adolf Hitler. says, if I control the textbooks, then I control society. And so they believe that by controlling the education system completely, therefore there is no ideas that can be brought in that are outside of the narrative. So we control what is being taught to these kids. They will know nothing else, and this will be the worldview that they will have. That's the gist of it. You see, he believed that a person's identity was completely derived from what he does. And so the only way to do this and to get this utopian society that he was hoping for, which is a great idea, If it would work. That's the thing. The idea is not poor if in a perfect world where everybody did just get along and weren't concerned about themselves first that we could do this. But that's not the reality of the world that we live in, and that's not the reality of what Scripture tells us about ourselves. So there are four errors, and there are more than this, but four main errors of Mark's thinking. First of all, his assertion that another person's gain must come at another individual's expense is a complete myth. In other words, if somebody got wealthy, they did it on the backs of somebody else by either taking from them, stealing their their time and their energy, and that's not right, so therefore we should take that from them and redistribute it. That's a complete myth, because if you study economics and history, you will see that as the wealthier get wealthier, so does everybody else. Because those with money reinvest their money and begin to create more jobs and more opportunities for other people. Plus, it gives other people an opportunity to raise their standard of living because there would be more money to go around. It is a complete myth. A second one is that his belief that a value or a product is based on the amount of labor that is put into it. Okay, How hard somebody works at something should determine the value of the item. Go back. Okay, do the McDonald's hamburger, why is it so cheap? Because those are lousy cows that they're buying. Why is the steak in Colorado so stinking expensive? And I learned a lesson. You ask for a menu before you sit down, just so you know. It's because that is a very fine quality beef. Those cows are raised in a different standard and different upbringing. It was called Wagyu beef, which is some Japanese thing where basically these cows live in a spa, and they're massaged every day? I don't know, I, I, it was news to me, but it was, it, was, it was amazing. I mean, don't get the tuna steak though. But, but I mean, it, it's the idea, it's not how hard one works for it. If you took two people, okay? One who is a finely trained carpenter, and he could go in and do a job, but he's gonna charge you a premium for it, but it's gonna take him half the time because he's really good at what he does. Versus somebody who's not good, who has to work really hard to build whatever that may be, and is sweating and toiling and it takes him three times as long, this one should not be able to charge more based on how hard he had to work at it. Because there is a, a flat rate that should go for something like that. How hard you have to work is irrelevant. It's how good you are at it. The quality of the product. When you get into socialism and communism, you're taking the quality out of the equation. It's the fact that it is now fixed pricing based off whomever makes that decision. A third thing about Marx is it necessitates that a government is free from corruption and negates the possibility of any elitism within its ranks. What's the problem with that? Nobody's like that. Everybody from their youth looks out for themselves, right? You guys ever seen Seinfeld? I love Seinfeld lines. It's too bad Janet's in the nursery because she gets them. There's an episode, if you guys know, we're George, right? You guys know George. You guys, you in the back, ever seen Seinfeld? I know I'm old. Bear with me. And, and there's somebody yells, fire, and he's in the kitchen. Now, a good man, what do they do when somebody leaves fire? Women and children, let's get them out of the building. Not George. He ran over an 80-year-old woman to get to the door. Right? Why? Because he's interested in what he has to deal with. His life. That's all he cares about. He doesn't care about anybody else. I mean, some people will do the right thing in certain circumstances. But um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. You guys have heard these terms before. It's like saying that, oh, everybody that's ever tried this before was completely evil, and they did it wrong. But not me. I'll do it right. The odds of that happening are almost nil because from your youth, your heart is evil. I told you the analogy. You've got one cookie, two kids. It's a fight to the death. Somebody's going to come out victorious. What would you do? Split it in half, right? That's what any rational adult would. But a child, I don't know if this is true, but this is my theory. In a child's mind, this is the last cookie on earth. And the final opportunity in their life to have said cookie. Therefore, they will punch their sister to get it. That's nothing specific I'm speaking of. But, but, but that's, that's, that's how we are. We, we, we are evil from our youth. Our heart is evil. The Bible says that we talked about that incessantly last week. Only God is what makes us good. Because no matter how good we say that we are, we are comparing to a man-made standard. If God is the standard, then we are all evil, short, fallen. We are not right. But God makes us right. So a nation or government would kill the idea of God and somebody rises up to take God's place. Those of you that know your Bible, what does that sound like? The Antichrist, the one who will rise up politically and bring peace to the Middle East. And Jews and Muslims will now get together and allow to worship, and everybody will bow down to him. The fourth idea is that he was wrong about a person's identity being bound up in what the work that they do. Yes, that happens. But secular society forces this belief on nearly everyone, but the Bible says that we are all created equal by God, and we are all valuable to Him, so much so that had only one of us been on this earth, Jesus still would have come to die in our place. That's how valuable we as individual are to Him. So as I said, you got these different ideas and these different theories. Here's what we need to know. Ideas have consequences, Right? They have dire consequences, and we'll talk about that more next week. But we have a capitalist society here, although it's broken, it's got blending of a bunch of other stuff in it as well, but socialism in and of itself leads to communism. It's happened every time it's ever been tried. So here's the question. What does the Bible say about socialism? Because we've got a movement in this country today saying that, well, no, Jesus and the apostles were all socialists. They all rose up and they all lived together and they kind of took from one another. Well, let's look at this because those ideas come from Acts chapter 2 through Acts chapter 5. And so I want to show you clearly what the Bible says here in these circumstances. We're going to start in Acts chapter 2 and start in verse 40. Now you need to understand what's going on here. Let me, let me give you the context. Acts chapter 2 is where the Holy Spirit comes upon the apostles in the upper room. And 3,000 people that day came to the Lord. They said they were, they were born again essentially. Because Peter got up and gave the sermon of his life. And so after this, they are still in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is still Jewish. And the leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all of those in the Sanhedrin, still were against Christianity. So much so, they're trying to lock them up and kill them. And so in verse 40, he says, With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. This is Peter talking. Those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, or you could say teaching, and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayer. So they were together, they were hanging out together, they were eating together, they were praying together. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So there are miracles that are taking place through the hands of the apostles. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So you see what they did there. They all give their hearts to God, and therefore they went and they sold all of their goods, and they brought the money in, and they shared it equally, right? Does that sound like socialism? No. Why? Who takes the money in socialism? Not the individuals who decided what they did with it. It is the government comes in and takes it from you and distributes it as they will. But look here. It says they sold their possessions and goods and they they divided them among all as anyone had need. See, it was still their stuff. They sold their houses, their lands, their livestock, whatever. They were doing this as a, a way of survival because it was very hostile at this point. And these followers of the way, these followers of Yeshua, these guys were, were being killed, I mean, constantly. This is what goes on. And so they decided they're going to take their things, they're going to sell, and they're all kind of communing together. But it was an act of survival. And they gave to people as they need, but it was still theirs to give. You guys see the difference. You see a distinguishing here. Let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostle gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed them to each one as anyone had need. Now, let's look here, because again, this is another proof text that people try to use. You see, they were socialists. Well, everybody of their own validity, nobody made them do this. The apostles did not stand up. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to go sell everything and bring me the money, right? That sounds like some Christian television today, doesn't it? But that's not what happened. They went and sold them. They were all in common together. They were living and spreading the gospel together. And so they sold everything that they had, those who chose to, and they brought them to the apostles' feet. Why? Because the apostles were the ones directly out there ministering and had, knew who had need. It's kind of like the church. Like, I'm the one that gets the phone calls and the people that come in who are looking for help. They may not go to your house, they might, but they come here first. Why? Because people give money here, and we as a church help these people as we can. That's the same thing that's going on. They brought them, but they distributed them to each one as they had need of the people's stuff that the people freely gave of their own felicity, saying, I will give this to you. That's the difference. Nobody took them from them, and nobody forced them to do this. Look at Acts 5, verse 1. A certain man, this is right at the, after four, a certain man named Ananias was Sapphira. His wife sold a possession. He kept back part of the pre- proceeds and his wife along being aware, with it, aware of it and brought a certain part and laid it at apostles' feet. So what did he do? He sold his stuff like everybody else did, but he kept some of the money, okay? That's the difference. Then they brought some to the apostles. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained... Was it not your own? Why, well, you still had it. Was it not yours? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Verse 5, then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes. Then Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. So what was it he said? When the land was yours, when you still owned it, was it not yours and in your control to do with what you felt like? And The answer is yes. Then once you sold it, was that money not yours to do with what you wanted to and the answer was yes. But what he did is he came in and he gave a portion and said, I brought you everything, just like everybody else. And for that, there was a judgment that took place. He lied to God. But it was still in his control. These are the texts that people will try to use. See, it was a socialistic society. No, it wasn't. It was their items. Remember, they had liberty to do with it what they want. They could have kept the land. They could have kept the houses. They could have kept the livestock. Or they could have chose to sell them and keep the cash. Whatever they wanted to do, it was theirs. Nobody forced them to do this. God did not say, here's what I need you to do. Thou shalt sell everything and give it to me. That's not what happened. So there are a lot of things. All believers in Jerusalem sold their possession as this communal pot that was controlled by them. If it was socialist, it would have had to been controlled by the state this is the distinction. If this, all of this, Acts 2-5, through 5 was teaching socialism, this is what it would have to show. That they sold everything and gave it to the government. The government to distribute it. That private property rights, which is upheld through the rest of Scripture, would have to be abolished by this passage. Which it wasn't, right? Was it not yours when you owned it? Was it not yours when you sold it? The voluntary giving demonstrated by individuals in this passage gives the state the right to coerce people to give up their property. Is that what it said? No. Government wasn't involved here. The apostles weren't involved here. People did this on their own. The pattern here was not temporary but permanent and it's a rule for the rest of the New Testament. Do we, do we see people after this living on their own, keeping their stuff? Absolutely you do. That is why Paul is constantly writing and he says it in many places, listen, about the gift that you're going to give. That is yours. I want you to think about it. I want you to pray about it. And I want you to give as you feel led. Okay? That's the idea. The, that you can get out of this is imperative but it's it's like we ought to do something or we can do something is the distinction you know we ought to give but we can choose whether or not to right And it's a clear teaching that entails government ownership of the the means of production, coercive taxation, and wealth redistribution in the rest of Scripture would have to be there in order for this to make sense in the eyes of socialism, and it cannot because that is not what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament. You see, the problem here is we're taking proof text out of context without seeing the fact that it was always there from the beginning. It was always their money, their land. So does that fit the idea of liberty... Prosperity and generosity, it does because it was always theirs. This isn't socialism. This is God's way. We have freedom to do with it what we want. We have freedom to, to profit from it as we want and be prosperous with it. And we have freedom to be generous with it if we choose to. So I want to look at one more thing here. It's the parable of the talent. And then we'll get you guys out of here. I know I've run a little long. The parable of the talent. We need to understand this because this is a big one. You need to understand what a talent is, which is a, it's a monetary thing. The idea in this parable is that the landowner, we'll read it, gives, or the owner gives each person money, and they were supposed to go do something with it, and there were consequences of that. So what is a talent? Well, it's not easy to figure that out. It comes from the Greek word talenton. It wasn't a coin, but it was a monetary reckoning. And it was always used in the idea of silver, kind of like we used to be on a gold standard or a silver standard. Your dollar bill represented a certain amount of silver or a certain amount of gold. It no longer does that. But it was available then. It was used in Palestinian worlds and things like that. It was usually silver, and it was confirmed here by the, the Greek word to be agrion, which is the silver or the silver coin. What's happening here is when a, they take about a silver talent weighed approximately 75 pounds, and had a value of 600 denarii. Denarii were used, they were coins that they carried around there. That means that each one of those was worth approximately $250,000. Okay, so keep that in mind as how much money is being given to these guys to take care of. So basically, of these three servants, there's nearly $2 million worth of money that's being given out here. Now, let's look at this, Matthew 25, verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country. Okay, this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus is teaching it. Who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to each one he gave five talents, to another two, and another one. He gave them to each of them according to their own ability. Now that's the key, right? So, based off the ability they have, he gave more to some and less to others. And immediately he went on a journey. Then he had received the five talents. He who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. He who also who received two talents came and said, Lord, you deliver to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy, the joy of your Lord. Now let's stop there for a minute. you got two different people with two different amounts. Both had the exact same outcome because they were given to them based off of their ability, right? He, did not, he didn't go to the guy who got him five more, doubled his money because that's a more dollar amount, right? And say, man, that's fantastic. You did amazing. And then go to the guy with two who also doubled his money, but it's not as much, and say, oh, I wish you could have done more with it, right? It was based off their ability that it was given to them, and they increased it from the time that he was gone. And he apparently was gone for a while because this is how that would work. So he was proud of them. He said, listen, you've done great. Then we get to the last guy. Then he who received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But the Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, has, more will be given. And he he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, the one guy took it and did nothing with it. There's a principle here they all had the freedom to choose what they wanted to do with it right but there was an expectation with what had been given to them and so you had two men that had the heart of the Lord here not big God G but the the, the master who knew that he invests well and he gets a return on his money and one guy who did not and because of that you have completely different outcomes The top two were saying, man, great job, enter into rest. I'm going to make you master over much. But the bottom guy, he's like, no, I'm taking this from you and I'm giving it to somebody who will do something more with it. But in a socialist society or a communistic society, what do we do? The opposite. We take from those who have to give to those that have not. A lot of times the reason these people have is because they have taken what little they've gotten and done something with it. And a lot of times, when people have not, it is because of poor decisions that they have made and done nothing with their money. Now, this is not always the case, okay? Because some people win the lottery, right? And then they have a bunch. But you know what the percentage is of people who are broke within five years of winning the lottery? It's like 88% or something like that because they don't know how to handle money. You see, this is a pattern that is laid out by God. We don't take from those who have and give them to those who don't. We all have the opportunity to work with what God has given us and to do what He wants us to do with it. This is the opposite of these Marxism ideas. It's the complete opposite. We have liberty in God to do with it what we want. We make good decisions and bad decisions. But if our heart belongs to God, if we seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things will be added to him. Look at this, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes verse, chapter 5, verse 18. This is the last verse. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him. For it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, This is the gift of God. You see, they toiled in the sun day and night, and they've earned that, and it is a gift from God to be able to enjoy that. There is nothing in the Bible that ever says that we take away from those who have to give to those who have not. What it does say is because we have freedom to choose what we want to do, to give where we want to give, and because we have the ability to be prosperous, especially because we are blessed in this country, We should be generous to those who have need and to reach out those who need help. So who should be taking care of the widows and the poor? It's not the government. It is the body of Christ. We talk about these boxes, right? We're doing a little something to give out to the world. When we're filling these bags for the hub, these are people on the street that have nothing. How they got there, I don't know. That's not my problem. But we can do little things to give to them to help out and share the gospel with them. And not only that, and we shouldn't stop with that, we should teach them how to get out of the situation they're in and get them to a better situation. I had a homeless man come to the church one day. Okay? He was 67 years old, walking with the cane, had been walking up the interstate, made his way to the church. He was tired, obviously. He wanted a ride to Maryville. I said, what's in Maryville? I'm hoping to find a house, and I'm hoping to find a job. And he said, the problem is, is where I've been, I can find housing, but I find no work. And other times, I find work, but I got no place to live. It's kind of a conundrum, right? And so, he really wanted me to take him to Maryville, and I told him I'm not going to take him there, because what am I going to do with him when I get you there? Am I going to drop you off on the street? I, that, what good does that do you? So, I said, I will take you to Omaha. To the Open Door Mission, who has the people and the ability to help you in your situation and help you get out of this. What do you want to do? He's like, well, I don't like big cities. I want to go to Maryville. Okay, maybe you didn't hear me. I'm not taking you to Maryville. If you want to go to Maryville, you're walking. But I will take you to Omaha. And so he decided to go, and I took him up there to Omaha, and we fed him good before we dropped him off, because I was assuming they eat well, but I don't know, so we went to Pepper Jack's, because Jesus hangs out there. And and talked to him the whole way and was able to minister him, and we gave him a little bit of cash from the church here and, and whatnot. But again, I was looking out for his best interest because what good am I going to take him to someplace with no, nothing that I'm aware of that can help him out in this situation? I'm not going to take a 67, 68-year-old man and drop him on the streets. So if he wanted to get there, he could walk. You see, because this church has been generous, we had the opportunity, and we choose to give and we choose not to give, to help somebody out who, for whatever reason, is on the streets. And I didn't get into the details of that. I have had people that have come through here that I will give nothing to. And the reason is, is because they're lying to me, and I catch them in it, because I ask lots of questions. I want to know, how do you end up here? And sometimes giving people money is not the best thing in this situation. The bottom line is, guys, we have the freedom to choose. When you get into these other systems, then it takes away that freedom that we have afforded to us by God to do with it what we want. If the government is taking care of those who are in need, how on earth is the church to fulfill its responsibility? When Jesus said to the apostles, you need to do this, this is what we do. This is why you've got Jim and Oma that take several trips a year down to El Salvador, helping people down there that have absolutely nothing. For those of you that support different ministries or, you know, that are around the world, this is why we do these things. This is why we help out here at home. Guys, we have the freedom here. We don't want anybody to take that from us because it is a God-given right. Remember, ideas have consequences. So what are the consequences of communism and socialism? We'll look at that next week.